Hello, and welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, and I'm here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church. Today we are tackling the famous chapter of Isaiah 6. And uh, it's one of these chapters that I kind of have a soapbox about, so bear with me. As I've been in a lot of different church communities over the years, it seems Isaiah 6 always gets picked to be the chapter for uh, inspiring young people to go out and pursue their calling in life because the chapters focus so much on the calling of a prophet into uh, what God wants him to do. And so a lot of pastors will use this chapter to uh, really inspire the young people and the youth groups to uh, really uh, think about God's calling in their life and think about what they want to do. My problem with that over the years has been that, well, one, Isaiah 6 is is a calling that uh, is not a calling of goodness and uh, not a calling where the prophet <laughs> ends up uh, in a good situation where they're going to be successful their entire life. It's actually a calling to um, be a failure, really, and to tell the people of Israel uh, and in Judah that... Uh, they're not going to listen to any word he says and that they're going to stop their ears and harden their hearts. And uh, yeah, it's a call really to pursue a life in which no one will listen to him. And that oftentimes gets overlooked when this passage gets used to inspire young people, I feel like. And uh, while I oftentimes agree with the sentiments that uh, are found in many of those places and inspiring young people to pursue their calling, I do believe in I don't know if Isaiah 6 is the best passage to use for that, just judging by the context. So that was just my little soapbox with this chapter. Uh, if, if you go into uh, life afterwards thinking a little bit more about that and thinking about uh, what God actually called Isaiah, I'll see that as a win in my book. So let's go ahead and get into the chapter. that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go, tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So there's a few things I want to clear up before we get actually into the chapter. One of the things you might be curious about, at least, or maybe even a little confused about, is why the calling of Isaiah is in chapter 6 instead of chapter 1. And that's a big question that a lot of academics have been trying to answer for a very long time, and we still honestly don't have a full answer. We have many theories and possibilities of why Isaiah... Uh, chose to write out five chapters before he described his own calling. But the view that I particularly am fond of is the view that Isaiah is setting up a uh, table of contents almost with his first five chapters, explaining his own message that he's going to be called to speak. And so by the time you get to chapter six, you already have a kind of uh, good general idea of what the message that God is asking Isaiah to to, uh, speak to the people because otherwise in chapter six, you're just kind of thrust into this moment where God asks Isaiah to preach a message in which the people are just going to harden their hearts. Whereas if you have kind of a backstory of the first five chapters in your belt already, which you should have now after listening to the last five episodes, you kind of understand why God says this phrase, be ever hearing but never understanding, is that they've already had a message given to them. Uh, and this is uh, God saying, you're not going to listen to anything that Isaiah said in the last five chapters. So I'm just going to call Isaiah to say that. Um, and I love the bluntness of that. I love that uh, God is um, very honest. And uh, this, too, is also where we see God shift a little bit to 
more of a prophetic, futuristic um, foresight almost. Um, you see God uh, explaining that things are going to happen uh, with the people and their actions uh, far more so. Um, while before we were getting pronouncements of judgment and wrath to come, this is actually prescribing the actions of the Israelites in Judah um, and what they're going to do with Isaiah's message, which is a really bold thing if you think about it. If you think of someone that um, tells you a message and then immediately after telling you a message says, but I don't think you're going to listen to anything I said, that's a really challenging way to communicate and uh, is something that uh, I think stands out here in chapter 6. So yeah, that's a little bit of background to what we're going to do. So let's go ahead and uh, jump in and dive into the actual words here. So you'll notice um, there's a couple themes in this uh, section that I think I'll I'll point out. You'll notice that uh, it starts with a very story-based perspective, right? We've moved out of the long oracles of God speaking against Israel in the first five chapters, and now Isaiah is describing in first person um, an event that actually happened to him. And so we get a really interesting change in the book as a whole. And this is actually going to continue. Chapters 7 and 8 will also be first-person driven um, and will be very story-centric. So we'll be jumping a little bit out of the normal oracle God just talking for a whole chapter um, through the voice of Isaiah to the people. And now we get to actually see some characters interacting with Isaiah and how they're responding. And in this chapter, we get to see Isaiah interacting with God in this heavenly place. Another thing I'll point out is that uh, a huge image in this first bit is him being caught up to the temple. And uh, what's interesting about that is that the Israelites at this time still had Solomon's temple. They still had the temple that was in Jerusalem. And all of this imagery is pulling from Solomon's temple. But the unique thing about it is that this temple is not in Jerusalem, but it's in heaven. And this kind of communicates an idea that was really prevalent in uh, the Old Testament times, which was that the temple was not just a physical place on earth, but it was also a bridge to heaven. And God, in essence, was uh, sitting on a throne in the temple in heaven as well as on earth. And that's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. We kind of think of heaven and earth in these two separate realms. But no, the Old Testament writers had this concept of heaven and earth overlapping almost right at the spot of the temple and in specific in the most holy of holies where the altar of the covenant would be. And so Isaiah is pulling on this imagery is he's been caught up in a vision, but uh, this vision has been focused on uh, the uh, temple, not in on earth, but it's but the temple in the same structure and everything from a heavenly perspective. And I think that's just so cool to help us understand that uh, the temple wasn't just a physical place, but for God, it was almost a bridge between earth and heaven. Another thing to think about is how much smoke and fire exist in this imagery. And this is all images that are calling back to Mount Sinai. Generally in the old Testament, when, uh, there are any types of visitations from God to people, there usually involves some callback to Mount Sinai. There's usually this um, idea of smoke and flame all in one because that's what was going on in the mountain uh, 
on top of the mountain at Mount Sinai as the people were looking up at the mountain and all they saw was smoke. Uh, and they were even guided in the wilderness by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And so these images stayed in their minds and they began to think of the Lord as represented by both flame and by smoke. And so um, a big question a lot of people have is where did the seraphs come from? Where the the bigger name for those is seraphim? In the Hebrew, the word seraph actually is better translated as burning ones. And this, again, is kind of calling to this idea of God being uh, related to flame and fire. Another thing I'll point out is that Isaiah is going to take the theme of flame and fire, especially with this burning coal that will touch his lips. And this theme is going to trace itself throughout the entire book. Because for the uh, Israelites in Judah, this was a big theme. Up until this point, uh, everything unclean, if it touched a clean thing, the clean thing would then be made unclean. So if there was a dead body, that would be considered unclean. Um, Say I'm walking next to it, I would be considered clean. But if I touch that dead body... I wouldn't make the dead body clean. The dead body would make me unclean, right? But here, for the first time, we have an object, a fiery coal, that when it touches Isaiah's unclean lips, as he proclaims, it purifies his unclean lips, not the reverse. And this is huge. This is really new territory for the Israelites. And uh, this is the moment that we begin to see that God is doing something new that's going to purify his people like this fiery coal. And this image of purifying through flame will be an image that carries itself throughout the rest of the whole book of Isaiah. And it's something to keep in mind is that flame represents God's wrath, yet it's a purifying wrath. It's not a hateful, vengeful wrath. It's a wrath that's going to come and going to uh, demolish what Israel once was, but through it, there will be a remnant of people that will come out of it purified, even as Isaiah's lips were purified. So maybe that helps understand a little bit of the imagery there. Um, Another thing that uh, many people don't know is that Jesus and the apostles in uh, the Bible quote a lot from this passage. This passage um, where God says, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. This gets used a lot to uh, justify why the Jews are not listening to Jesus, why some Gentiles are not listening to Christianity and to the apostles. Um, Quite often this is used as an explanation for Uh, people's hardness of hearts. Um, And they oftentimes use it almost as their last final word of say after they've given the message of the gospel and people are not receiving it and are, uh, in fact, oftentimes persecuting Christians. The apostles and Jesus will both call back to this passage and say these exact lines here almost as a final... um, All right, you have it your way. Um, You'll be hardened. You'll have hard hearts, and you won't ever 
um, become purified. Um, and it's a really um, daunting saying, uh, as I said before. Uh, and so it's something to keep in mind as we walk through um, these verses that above all, uh, it's one of the most quoted uh, passages in the New Testament. Not the most, but it is one of the most quoted uh, in the New Testament because oftentimes the New Testament apostles and Jesus ran into people that were very similar to the people in Isaiah's time. So, yeah, hopefully that gives you a lot of an idea of what's going on here, how Isaiah um, is called out of this. Um, one last thing I'll point out is that obviously at the end we still see that there is going to be a holy seed, which uh, will be the stump in the land. Um, there's an interesting kind of relationship here with seed. Um, in the Hebrew, the word is zarah, and zarah means not just a seed that's planted in the ground, but it also means um, inhabitants or descendants. Um, seed sometimes even was used even more uh, to describe uh, a husband's offspring after he had produced offspring, right? And uh, in the uh, famous passage where Abraham has promised many descendants, um, God actually uses the language of seed and says, I will give you many seed um, in your lifetime. And so that's the, it's all tied in with this idea of one humans being trees um, and that continuing theme. I talked about that last week in chapter five uh, and four, and also this idea of um, descendants when you die, the idea is that you continue yourself on in your descendants like there's genetically there's a bit of your genetics in the next generation and so your genetics continue into the next generation and so in a, in a really interesting way uh, a lot of the way that humans operate and how we have progeny uh, relates a lot to the idea of a tree bearing a seed and that seed then growing up and becoming its own tree and always the same kind of ties back and forth so that's why he relates it to this holy seed, uh, is that there will be descendants of this people that will claim the land back. And again, this is a reminder. I've said it a million times at this point, but I feel like it bears repeating again. Uh, this is a reminder that uh, God is not completely done with Israel. Even as much as they've done terrible things, he is merciful and he's keeping this people pure and he's going to exercise his wrath to keep them pure but he will keep a holy seed in the land and he will be with that with that people because above all he's proving to everyone that he is faithful to his people even if his people are not faithful to him so yeah uh hopefully that gives you some insight into isaiah 6 i'm excited to keep going through this thank you so much <laughs>